idea is to take all of the disincentives to work together on a team away. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Stephen Swenson. He is a medical doctor with over 35 years of experience at the Mayo Clinic. He has served in a number of senior roles at the Mayo Clinic, including the Director of Leadership and Organizational Development. He's an award winner and author of three books with his most recent called Mayo Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout. So let's begin. Dr. Steven Swenson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here, Jono. Thank you. So before we talk about the Mayo Clinic and your experience as a healthcare leader within that organization, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and your journey into healthcare. Sure. Well, I grew up in a small town, Wisconsin, and uh, three boys in one bedroom and three girls in another bedroom. Uh, so eight folks in our family, and we all shared one bathroom, and all six kids uh, stayed at home for college, which was my dad was a professor, and my mother was a preacher after the six kids left home. That, I think that formed some of my social equity, human interaction uh, kind of dimensions in the early years. Um, my mother's brother, my uncle, was a male clinic physician also, and he was one of my role models growing up. And I, I, I always admired my Uncle Glenn and wanted to be him, like him. And he was a mentor and friend. He, had, he died young at 53, but he, he, before he died, I was able to join the staff of Mayo, uh, which was always my dream. And uh, I spent my whole career there, 35 years. And uh, I don't call myself retired. I don't because I transitioned from Mayo in the last seven years, I've been working full time, but I just don't carry a pager and I don't uh, take call anymore. That's a great story and just so cool that you had a f some family that uh, inspired you to come into the healthcare profession. Now, I'll be really interested to hear about some of those early experiences that you've had in your career and also uh, what you feel the Mayo Clinic is, is all about. Well, I, I trained at uh, Mayo and then uh, University of Wisconsin in Madison for medical school. I did my chest work out in Boston at Harvard. And uh, I had six different careers at Mayo. And um, the, the first career I had was that lasted 35 years was taking care of patients. And I did uh, diagnostic and interventional uh, chest work. Mayo is a physician-led organization. And I think that's a, an attribute of... Uh, healthcare organizations that I think is very positive. I know there are other models that work, but if you wanted a world-class symphonic orchestra, you would want a conductor who used to play the violin or uh, was a percussionist instead of someone who just studied how to conduct an orchestra. And so I think that's critical of building trust and really understanding what the mission of the organization is, healthcare organization, and what it really means to be close and, and to run a patient-centered organization. And at Mayo, all of the clinician, physician leaders practice medicine. So how can you have a bunch of doctors, less than 5% of them have an MBA or MHA, run a $17, $18 billion not-for-profit organization that sees patients from 152 to 155 countries every year and all 50 states every year. Well, you know, that would be crazy to have doctors do that without, and still practice medicine, do it part-time. So the approach at Mayo is uh, a dyadic and team leadership model. So all the, uh, all the clinicians, including the CEO, 
chairs of large departments, small departments, deans, their allocation for time is, you know, 20 to 80%. And the rest of the time, they're practicing medicine and they partner with a full-time administrative team, including a full-time administrator who is trained with a, a fellowship level or the a master's level than uh, uh, MBA or MHA or, or equivalent. And, and then in addition to that dyadic partner, full-time administrator, there's a whole administrative team of education experts, research experts, finance experts, accounting experts. So it's a team approach, but it's led by a practicing physician. So how long has this model uh, been around for? And uh, what was the journey like to, to get it to this, um, to this level? Mayo is about 167 years old now. Started in the 1860s by a uh, English uh, immigrant family, uh, William Morrow Mayo, and so it's the first and largest integrated group practice in the world. Uh, all the physicians are on a pure salary system, so there's no production model, uh, there's no bonuses. Um, every pediatrician makes exactly the same as every other pediatrician. Every cardiac surgeon makes exactly the same, no matter how many papers they publish, how much teaching they do, how many cases they do. So it's, it's very egalitarian and very, all the benefits and all of the practices are transparent. And, and so from the early days uh, of Mayo, um, Harry Harwick was the first administrator and he was an administrator partner for the Mayos that were full-time surgeons. And um, so it, it's, it's a model that we've been uh, modifying and polishing and sculpting for a century and a half. It was the first integrated group practice. Many of the others in the world are modeled after it, like the Cleveland Clinic and the Oxnard Clinic and Virginia Mason. It, it, the idea is to take all of the disincentives to work together on a team away. It, it, and it goes beyond that. So um, every department has to deliver a the cl- collectively um, world-class medicine, research, education. We have like over 4,000 uh, students or trainees or fellows at uh, Mayo. It's a large training program, one of the largest in the country. And so some, some doctors are better at teaching and some are better at research and some are better at uh, uh, clinician and some are better at leaders. And so collectively the group delivers that. And they, you know, everybody needs to do their share to have timely access. So if someone flies in from New Zealand and they, you know, they're staying in a hotel. Rochester is a tiny little place surrounded by cornfields. So you need to have same or next day access for all lab testing, all imaging, all surgical procedures, all consults to neurology or, or rheumatology or whatever it would be. And then the departments are set up to work together also. If we're not for profit and if a department makes more money than they spend on salaries and then that money's Mayo Clinic money. It goes back and then it's distributed by consensus of physician leaders in partnership with the administrators. So, so the, the departments are set up not to compete with each other, but to cooperate. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing about some really interesting systems and structures, but obviously I'm sure what ties a lot of this together is is a really uh, strong culture. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, the culture at Mayo? Yeah, so the culture is absolutely the what, what the the mortar between the bricks, and the primary value is the, of Mayo Clinic that everyone knows from the environmental services folks to the accountants to the nurses and doctors and social workers is 
the needs of the patient come first. So we start with the patient and we work backwards. And, you know, a lot of organizations say that. Um, and I think we aspire to and work very hard to live it. And, and so it, we would have, you know, meetings and board meetings and committee meetings and, you know, section meetings and department meetings. And we would be regularly ask ourselves, is this really the needs of the patient coming first? Or are we thinking about something else? And, uh, you know, because we're not set up to compete with turf battles and money issues, because that's when you come, you, you know what you're getting into. Uh, all the salaries are based at the, about the 65th percentile. So some people, if it's more about money, they'll go someplace else and make more money in private practice. There's a very uh, team um, collaboration, uh, cooperation uh, ethic, and we perpetuate that in many ways, but it starts with who we hire. And so we, we have you know, large training programs of over 4,000 learners in different, different uh, categories. So most, most of whom we hire, uh, it, it was not a day interview or a five-hour interview. It was a five-year interview. <laughs> and, and so we really know if, 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 if we think they are a match and they know if this culture is a match for them also. Yeah, I understand when people get a job at Mayo, they have sort of a year-long contract and then have various sort of assessments and understanding from, from their colleagues about how things are going. Can you talk a little bit about that? We commit to anyone we hire, all physicians. We have, we have no signed contracts or anything. It's all handshakes. Um, but after three years, we have a formal transition to a more permanent appointment. And, and during the first three years, it's a, they're doing regular work, of course, but it's filled with uh, many different assessments and onboarding activities, everything from simulation training uh, for, you know, not for surgical procedures and, you know, and codes, but, but simulation for time with um, actors who are Muslim or Jewish or Buddhist or Christian or atheist and uh, actors and actresses who are LGBT so, so that we get comfortable dealing with people from cultures all over the world. We see uh, all of our staff uh, undergo an emotional intelligence assessment, not to pass or fail, but then to reflect on that and say, well, what does that mean for me as a team member? And, and then we have a series of uh, leadership development uh, uh, experiences. Most of them are action learning in those three years. And uh, we look at every physician, even if they never have a formal leader title, as a leader. And, and they're looked at as leaders by patients and by all of our staff uh, in their actions and in their words. So, um, and then after three years, the vast majority will continue on. But usually at the end of three years, both parties know if it's a match with culture. And, um, and then we move on from there. You mentioned leadership there. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, what leadership means to you and, and why it actually matters in healthcare organizations. So leadership is the most important thing for an organization to thrive and for its people to thrive. Uh, leaders have many critical jobs. Um, they're not managers, for one, and they're not supervisors. Mayo is about 70, you know, 70 some thousand staff at our 23 hospitals. And every year uh, we have a survey of, the, of all staff, doctors, everybody, same questions. And we, it's, it's an opportunity to assess 
morale and teamwork and psychological safety. And if there are any, any issues with people feeling uh, left out and we share the results with all staff and we take those surveys seriously to make improvements from year to year. Um, included in that annual staff survey are 12 questions that everyone asks is, is asked about their immediate leader. And we looked at the, uh, those, those 12 questions about you as a leader uh, are basically five behaviors. And the, and the five behaviors correlate very strongly and are very powerful drivers of, of uh, morale and, uh, and when we looked at uh, the analysis of those, they were much more important than strategy or benefits or salary or other measures of culture. They were the most powerful determinant of uh, emotional well-being of our staff. And the five, five behaviors are, they're, they're not rocket science, they're, um, they're common sense, and we want to make them common practice. First is... I appreciate what you did today. I, I want to recognize you in front of the group. I want to thank you. Uh, the second is um, first to seek to understand. What do you think we should do? What's on your mind today? Um, here's our challenge. Um, let's figure this out together. And I'm interested in hearing you talk before I talk. Third behavior is uh, uh, mentorship uh, and coaching. So, um, that's a very important job of a leader. And so what is it you want to be doing five years from now at Mayo Clinic? How can we work together for your dream to come true? The, the fourth is transparency. Um, so you open the books, everybody feels included. And the fifth and last of the behaviors that we measure in all staff, all leaders across the organization, does everyone feel included regardless of phenome or genome? These, all these behaviors build trust, and, and, and that's one of the fundamental challenges and opportunities and roles of a leader is to build trust in the staff. So leaders matter, but they matter for morale, for culture, for mentorship, for a, a climate where everyone feels respected, regardless of LGBTQ, um, religion, color, cloak, whatever. And uh, I know it has a big impact on making staff engaged. Can you tell me a bit about that? That was our prime task, was to deal with uh, leadership development, assessment, readiness of leaders. But this, the second piece was to address uh, professional burnout, a national epidemic, particularly physicians who have the highest rates of uh, professional burnout. And, and so that's when I got into the research. Tate Shanafelt was... Uh, my, my partner in that, he was a lymphoma leukemia doctor. We put together a program that substantially reduced uh, professional burnout. The words we use are important. So we want to use positive words that we're aspiring to instead of a negative word, burnout, we're trying to get rid of. It was more about professional fulfillment. Tate and I wrote this a book on our process and now um, much of what we've done of the 12 actions in that book to create ideal work conditions are being used across uh, America and beyond for uh, what is turning into be an epidemic outside of healthcare and healthcare professionals as well. How do you feel burnout has changed in your career from uh, what we used to describe it and, and see of it and what it's like now? 
the definition and the the measurement of professional burnout is was described by Christina Maslock uh, maybe forty years ago. So the the, the 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 measurement system has been in place, and that's it hasn't changed. But the drivers have changed. So burnout has gone up steadily and substantially in healthcare among physicians over decades. And so what's changed in some of the drivers is the amount of clerical work and the interaction with computers and, and, uh, and mouse clicks. And uh, in many organizations, a pressure to produce, you know, the production model to reach certain targets so that not, even not-for-profits still have to have a margin. And I think that used the right way, the digital environment we're in is actually can improve quality and can improve well-being and certainly productivity, but it was mainly designed for building and not for <laughs> recording and, and improving the, the care relationship with uh, patients and families. So I, so I think it's the, the work hours, some of the, the demands to produce, some of the clerical environment, some of the workflow issues create this cognitive dissonance and it leads to emotional exhaustion and cynicism, which are the characteristics of professional burnout. And, and uh, we, we have a pretty good idea about how we can reverse uh, that uh, in organizations. And how do you feel um, concepts like resilience come into play when we're talking about burnout? What we should start is what are the root causes? What's stressing out uh, professionals who had above average mental health? Pre-med students have above average mental health compared to all the other majors and sections. And yet within the first half decade in uh, the profession, uh, they, the burnout rates skyrocket. And, uh, and then they have among the highest rates of burnout, even though they started with good mental health. Well, what do you, so there, there's a systems issue there then, right? So let, let, you have to look at what is the system involved in our training and in the practice that we can address. It's a shared responsibility, but it's largely responsibility of organizations and leaders to, to address the drivers and the causes. Resilience, personal resilience is very, very important. Um, and it's part of the whole the holistic approach to well-being, physical, mental well-being of all staff, including physicians. But the organizations that start with personal resilience make a big mistake because, first of all, they're not addressing the root causes and the most biggest opportunity for improvement, but they're also sending this message to staff is, oh, so this is my problem and all I have to do now is meditate, go to the gym, sleep and eat, you know, a Mediterranean diet. And, and it, so it, it can even make it worse, but it, it's the, the message no one should want to send. But yes, resilience, personal resilience are, is incredibly important, but, but and it's part of the whole package, but you shouldn't start with it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, I really like that you made that comment, obviously a little bit in jest around people, you know, telling someone to, to meditate or download an app or something like that, because I think uh, if you're not getting to the root causes, if you're not turning off the tap or hiring more people, then then this will continue. And there can have a, quite a big rippling effect, effect across an organization. So I'm really glad that you you spoke about that part there. Well, you're, you're right, John, about that rippling effect is true. So that's positive and negative emotions are contagious within teams and between teams and with organizations. So if, if the leadership of organizations doesn't get control of this, those ripples turns into waves and, and it's contagious. So, so addressing it the right way with uh, 
evidence-based uh, interventions is very important for the well-being of these professionals and it has huge negative ramifications for patients. You know, if, if patient care uh, from teams or individuals that have some uh, elements of professional burnout, cynicism, emotional exhaustion, loss of confidence in some of their professional ability, the, the, the patients uh, experience more medical errors. Uh, they are less likely to follow through on care plans. They, they see more uh, unprofessional behaviors of staff. There's less empathy. Uh, their physical wounds heal slower. Surgical wounds heal slower if they aren't treated with kind, if they don't think they're being treated with kindness and love. It has huge ramifications for patients as well. And so, and there's a business case for it financially if, if someone needs that as well. And I think uh, what's underpinning some of this is, is around that some of these types of solutions are more of a systemic type of approach. You know, it isn't just fixing this one point in one person's life at one time. It's actually looking at the entire organization and the, um, the, the full experience of what it is to, to work in that organization. Exactly. And, and so the, the way I would look at the, the full experience, uh, the, the research that, uh, that we've done um, builds on decades of research here. It builds on research with, from DC and Ryan, the self-determination theory and Harlow and, and Seligman on positive psychology uh, and intrinsic motivation. And it comes down, to, so the way we sorted it out is there are four basic human needs. In the, of agency, uh, collective effervescence, uh, ikigai, and positivity. And, and, and those are evidence-based with decades of research. We, we synthesize that into these four areas. In each of those four areas, there are tactics that are validated, evidence-based in healthcare with doctors that we know improves uh, their resilience. It, it addresses root causes. And, um, and basically, over the long term, sets the organization and its professionals up for success. Yeah, and, and I'll just add to that as well as, as success is including uh, the performance of that organization, both operationally but financially, and uh, gives that organization a longevity that I think is, is really important to, to be thinking about and investing in. Absolutely. So the, the costs are tremendous. If you look at physician turnover, it's very expensive. And, um, and and if they're if they're burned out and they stay, they it, it's contagious, like you were talking about. And it's also um, they become more focused on themselves, and they become there's less teamwork, and and then they affect the morale of the nurses, and then they leave. <laughs> and, and turnover is very expensive. There, professionals, uh, particularly physicians who are burned out, have much lower productivity. So. Uh, there's so many things that the organization is interested in beyond just the well-being of people in the organization. Now, you taught me about a, an interesting concept when I was uh, reading up about your background, uh, something called esprit de corps. Yeah, esprit de corps is uh, it, it's it's French for spirit of the body, and, and it, it's it's I, I love the word. It gives you this feeling of a team approach, working together with colleagues with this common vision. It's it's similar to this. This uh, collective effervescence, the term that uh, Emile Durkheim, the French psychologist uh, or sociologist from a century ago coined, esprit de corps is, the, is this um, harmony and energy and positivity that humans experience uh, 
when they come together with a common common ground and common pursuit. And, and so the ideal in medicine is you've got a doctor and a nurse and a social worker and, uh, and managers and, and pharmacists trying to help this patient and this family. And so that, then that's, that's one of those four basic human needs is this social connectedness. People who are socially connected in their lives and their careers uh, experience collective effervescence, esprit de corps, they live longer and, and organizations are set up to thrive. And so for leaders who really want to embrace this concept, what are the types of things that they can do? I know we've just spoken about, you know, having good hiring practices, uh, building up a, a pipeline for uh, feedback and um, potentially uh, additional education. Uh, what are the other th- types of things that leaders should be thinking about if they want to embrace this concept? Yeah. So, Jonah, we, um, Tate and I, Tate Shanify, is outlined this in, uh, you know, several hundred pages in the book with 12 specific tactics a blueprint with the strategy and the rationale. And I, I can briefly mention a few of them. So those four categories, we just talked about this esprit de corps, collective effervescence, this, so that one of the four human needs is a social connectedness. And so what can you do about that? Well, we, one of the tactics there is to, um, called commensality. Commensality is a fancy word for sharing a meal with someone. And so at Mayo with, uh, uh, Colin West and Lottie Derby and Cynthia Stonington, um, all, all three of them and many others, um, led three randomized controlled trials with doctors, but um, with commonality, having a meal and a conversation with professionals. The study, Cynthia Stonington studies was of women physicians who were also mothers, and they, they looked at burnout metrics, but they also measured cortisol levels, the stress hormone, or one of the stress hormones. And um, all three of the studies, it's as good a science as you get, they all showed the same thing. Cortisol went down, emotional exhaustion went down, social isolation went down, positive feelings about the organization went up, cynicism went down. And, uh, and so, so that's a tactic we know works. It's, it's evidence-based. And, and so at Mayo, when I was head of leadership development, we got the funding for it. It's, it's really budget desk we gave you know, 20 bucks per person to have a meal and they organized it and they had, had a conversation with six, eight folks and they would do that every, you know, two, three weeks over a dinner or lunch, breakfast, whatever. So that's a very simple one that we know works. And even these busy physicians that we thought would never find the time, the vast majority of, of physicians at Mayo signed up for it, either with groups of, you know, cardiologists getting together or full teams with, with, orthopedic surgeons and physical therapists and and nurses. And so we know that works. And that's a simple tactic in that uh, collective effervescence space. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I love that initiative. And I I love that, you know, it's backed up by science, but it's also just calls out to some basic um, uh, behaviors that we kind of know to be true around human connection, around breaking bread and, and understanding somebody's background. And that all sort of builds trust and, and that um, camaraderie and, and all of those really good things. I guess what that also speaks to is, is a bigger piece, which is uh, at Mayo around um, investing in social capital. Could you tell me a little bit about that? So social capital is the, um, the trust and interconnectedness of people. And so we're talking about social trust within an organization 
And so commensality would build some social trust and um, in that those small groups, the those five leader behaviors uh, build trust and um, and social capital within those smaller parts of the organization. Uh, and we talked about those five behaviors. So agency um, is another one of those four domains of human needs: agency or autonomy. And so this, um, you know, is based on many, many studies, including Marmot study, Michael Marmot, the epidemiologist in, in England, looking at thousands of workers over decades. And, and the, the workers that were able to say, I have some control over my work life, had less cardiovascular disease and cancer, and they live longer. And, and so it's, it's having some control over your life makes a difference in your well-being, in, including your health span and your, and, and your lifespan. So what can you do there to, to grow social capital by uh, increasing agency? Well, there are a, a couple, uh, there's maybe there are two tactics I'm thinking of. You know, one is this, we call it uh, removing pebbles. It's, it's a listen, sort, and power tactic where we, we would not do something for doctors and, and their teams, but we'd help them do it for themselves. And, and so basically, the, it's a short conversation. We're saying, what makes for your best day at Mayo Clinic? And describe it. And, it's, and then what, what gets between you and that best day every day? And, and then you start talking about what are your frustrations? What doesn't work well? So you start with something positive, aspirational, and then you look at opportunities to improve. And then when they identify these frustrations, uh, the pebbles in their shoes, then we with support, we still empower them to do it themselves. So that builds social capital for this team doing this together. And they're they're closest to the work, they're closest to the patient, and they're the people that should be know best how to improve the work. So they look at the workflow, the relationships, and we all these pebbles that come up, and then we prioritize them by impact, by sphere of control, and by feasibility. And then uh, we don't do it for them. We still, but we help them. Uh, with whatever improvement work they need, and uh, to remove that pebble. And if it's without, with if it's someone else's sphere of control, then we escalate it to the to the right level. And so, by working together as a team to make their work life better, uh, we build social capital. And um, leaders are so important. And and so, under agency, another idea for building social capital and to give staff control over the work life. We let them pick their leaders. So every, every physician leader has a term limit of no more than two four-year terms, so eight years. So they all rotate. All of them still have to practice medicine, surgery, pediatrics, whatever they do. Um, and so let's say the cardiology chair is rotating out. We would interview every cardiologist, say, who would be the best chair of your department? And then we get a list of, after talking to 100 cardiologists, we have a list of the you know top three or four that they would pick because they have social capital, they trust this person, these four people to lead. But instead of having the department choose one of those four cardiologists, we talk, then we have a committee of cardiac surgeons and vascular surgeons and cardiac radiologists and cardiac pathologists and some nurses and some administrators that pick one of those four that the cardiologists trust and, and then the rest of the organization sees as someone who would work well in an integrated group practice. And so that builds social capital, not within the cardiology department, 
but with all of the groups that they need to work with to have the best care for patient every day. And I like what you said there around how you're you're going out to those groups to find out who who they really think should be leading them instead of sort of a more top-down type approach. I'd like to come back to that point before around, you know, staff solving problems. I think sometimes health organizations or or clinicians even can be intimidated by actually asking these types of questions because then you find out, you know, the long, long, long list of problems that are going on and you may not have the uh, budget or infrastructure or time or believe you don't have those types of things to solve uh, those problems. So you don't ask. Uh, what would you say to, to people who are trying to understand how they uh, start building out an infrastructure to ask those questions and, and deliver on um, responses? So empowering staff to take control of their leadership, it gives them agency and, and, and of course, they're in the best position that knows that, to know what needs to be addressed. And, and so this listen, sort of power process I explained, it's it's not a project that you do and then you move on. It's a way to manage. It's a way to lead. It's a way to work with staff because there will always be frustrations. There will always be opportunities. There will always be pebbles. And it's a way to be honest with staff. And so when when they're going through their opportunities for improvement, then they can have a conversation with each other to figure out, well, can we just do this by changing the process? We can have someone help us with who's an improvement expert, but most of them just need time and attention and maybe a little administrative support. Some of them, like you're um, uh, alluding to, uh, might take a capital budget or might take cooperation with three other departments so they can't do it by themselves. So then with the support of the next, the one-up leadership, they would say, we understand your frustration. Let's see what solutions there are and um, how we could work together and see how much they cost. And then we say, okay, well, we've got, we've got seven things that have come up and um, you've prioritized them by impact and uh, feasibility. And then we can say, we can afford three of those this year. So let's pick those together. And so then, then staff understands that it's not them making this decision, it's us. And so the, the best way to lead with those five behaviors we talked about with this listen, sort of power is um, with, with the intent of making sure that we get the, our pronouns right. We and us and ours, not they and them. And so the more that we have these conversations, the more we talk about pebbles together and have conversations about how we can do this together, the more you know, those five behaviors of transparency and first seeking to understand those change the pronouns or keep the pronouns for we and us and ours. And, and those are the organizations that are set up to flourish. This is research from 155 countries. If, if staff, if employees can say, my leader cares about me as a person, they will flourish. The resilience skyrockets. Their likelihood to stay at that organization skyrockets. It's their immediate one-up leader. And if he or she uh, leads in a way where we can say they care about me as a person, um, then we've got half the battle done. And one thing that I think I'm getting from this as well is, is a story of, of collective leadership, that there isn't some sort of individual hero type 
of a person who's running around who knows all. It's actually um, empowering people to uh, to speak up and to solve their problems collaboratively with others. And I think what's important to, to realize for all of us, uh, if we think of our own work and we think of our colleagues' work, is, is we want to be proud of our, of our work and, and we want to get joy out of it. We should. And so if, if there's ways that we can um, facilitate that as leaders and as organizations and systems, you know, I, th- I think uh, we must. And so that's, that's kind of the story that I'm getting uh, from you. We, exactly. I didn't use those words, but they're exactly right. It, it, it's, it's a collective leadership, collective decision-making model. And, and so it's rooted in the science of participative management. So it's not, it's not a, the hero, the, the autocratic know-all boss. It's, it's the, a leader who facilitates team-based decision-making. And, um, and so the, the, those five leader behaviors facilitate that. A lot of our decisions at Mayo are made uh, by groups of people on task forces or boards and, or committees. And sometimes, you know, people roll their eyes and say, well, that'll take forever. Even if it takes a little bit longer than one person making a decision, in the long run, it's better for social capital. It's better for change management. It's better for buy-in the staff. The, the same idea behind a rotating chair. So the, the, any physician leader has a term limit and they're working with, their, their, they're a leader among peers. And so you're more likely to engage because, because in a couple of years, uh, you'll be my boss, right? And, and I'm working with my colleagues. So you, so you want to have the decisions, you know, um, be collective and at least have given every, you know, everybody a chance that wants to speak up and be heard even though you, everybody you can't have everybody agree with every decision, but the process is what matters. And I, I think what I'm hearing there is, is you know, you, you are really enhancing the quality of the decision. So, you know, if you if you make that decision, but you only make it once, and then you can move on, you know, that that is actually uh, an opportunity cost missed um, by actually making the right decision and spending some time to do it. And I'm also hearing that if you have the right culture surrounding these committees and, and, and specialty groups, uh, actually people uh, know that they will get a chance to, to um, sit in these areas. And so I assume they're probably more likely to be collaborative with those groups because you know they're all part of the same system and they may be there making some of those decisions one day. Right. The whole male model is built to, with egalitarianism in mind. So all 70,000 staff at Mayo have the same pension plan, health plan, the same access to the same gym. Uh, The salary stuff is transparent. Everybody doesn't get paid the same, but everybody doing the same job gets paid the same, but they feel like they're treated fairly. A couple of questions that I'd love to to ask to you around what you see the future looks like uh, in the kind of leadership space. I know you're not at Mayo at the moment. What do, what do you see the future looking like and what maybe challenges do we have that might be a little bit different from what we've uh, approached in the past? I think one of the fundamental challenges going forward for leaders, uh, major workforce issues, uh, workforce in terms of supply. And today there are seven generations for the first time ever in the workforce. And, and the younger generations, they have more choices and, and they're more likely to move if they come to an organization 
where they're not treated in a respectful manner because they have options and they go to another organization or they leave the profession. So I think that there's not a place in, in America, and I'm sure this is true for, for much of the West, that has a full staff of nurses and doctors and other NPs and PAs. And, and then that starts this vicious cycle because if you're short of staff, then you can't give the best care and, and then staff are working harder than they would choose to otherwise, and then you get more burnout and you got more turnover. I think the keys is leaders that have the ability to engage staff and to lead uh, with participative management so th- that the staff can feel like they have agency, they're involved, they're respected, and they can work together to improve the work environment, to make it more attractive for more nurses and doctors to join and less likely to leave. There's not more money coming in healthcare. It has the lowest return on investment for the well-being of society. It's a 10% determinant. Uh, 90% are, you know, the rest of the social determinants of education and transportation and housing and basic amount of money and et cetera. For what we spend in America on healthcare, it's twice the average of the OECD countries. As a country, we have the lowest uh, population health metrics of all the West. For spending twice as much. So that's something that leaders will have to address within healthcare and at a, at a national level to be better stewards of the what's now close to 20% of our GDP as an expenditure. Yeah. And I think while that sounds a little bit depressing, it, it also offers actually opportunity, right? That it shows that there is a lot of waste in the system, a lot of opportunity for co-creating value uh, with your staff, with your patients, and with your communities. You know, as healthcare recognizes more and more its uh, clinical care recognizes its place w- within the social determinants of health, we can be um, supportive um, uh, partners in connecting up to these other really vital parts of health and well-being too. Yeah, the leadership today and the future should focus on two things. The esprit de corps of the staff, their well-being, that is free. It pays for itself. And they should focus on quality. Quality is free. It pays for itself. You drive out waste, variation, defect, improve patient experience. The the, the dividends for um, lean sigma driving out waste, variation, defect, the return on that is much greater than the margin for almost any medical procedure or surgical procedure. And both of those are good things for patients and both of them are good things for staff. And if they focus on those two, there could, there could be some third, fourth, and fifth priorities, not more than five. But if they focused on those two, we would be a long way down the path to uh, high reliability and uh, sustainable margins for not-for-profit hospitals. Now, I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about uh, your newest book, um, because obviously the topics that we've covered today, uh, you go into greater detail there. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Pete Shanafeld and I wrote this, uh, and it's uh, Mail Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout, and the subtitle is really the, the more positive part, and, and it's 12 uh, uh, actions to create ideal work. All the 12 actions that we have in the book and the blueprint for identifying and measuring and, and delivering a highly resilient, um, low burnout staff, highly fulfilled staff, we've done and we've worked on and we've published them. And uh, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Oxford. We, all the, all the uh, royalties of the book, all of them go to charity. So th- th- we did this because we wanted to help colleagues and other organizations 
improve the well-being of their staff and the outcomes of their patients. And, and we think that these are some strategy and 12 tactics or actions that we know work. And uh, they mainly take the time and attention of leaders, not a big capital budget. Great. Well, that sounds like an awesome book to check out. I'll make sure I link it in the show notes. Dr. Stephen Swenson, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.